Well, again, I want to welcome you into my living room, and I'm so glad that you've invited me into yours in this manner as well. It's been a privilege to be able to connect with you, to continue to connect with you, or maybe for some of you to begin to connect with you in this virtual online way as we, as we gather to worship, learn, and pray together. This morning, I'm going to be teaching from the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is actually a letter uh, written by Paul to believers in a city named Philippi. And in this letter, uh, Paul, as he began it, he gave thanks to God for the believers there. He prayed for them. And as he wrote this letter, he, he wanted them to know that despite his imprisonment, despite the fact that he found himself behind bars for, for his faith, that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, it was still advancing. It was still moving forward and accomplishing great things, being blessed by the power of God. Then he also urged them to live for Christ, to live in a manner that was consistent with their identity. Now, this is something that this, this uh, living in a manner that's consistent with your identity in Christ, this is something that's always a challenge for us as Jesus followers. The, the Bible says that, that we are holy and righteous. The Bible, the Bible says we are God's people, that we are God's children for those of us who have received Jesus by faith and, and that we have new life in him, that we are new creations in Christ Jesus, that the, the old has gone and the new is there. And yet at the same time, in our experience, we realize that we, we still mess up, we still fail, we still fall, we still stumble, we still, we still sin. Why? Because we're still in process. We're not yet perfect. And so that, that gap between who the Bible declares us to be, as, again, as people of, who have received Jesus and, and what we experience on an everyday basis, that gap always, there's, there's a little bit of tension there. And that's, that's very real. And it's, it's, it's always that way. And then in times of crisis, it can even be more acutely felt. We're in a time of crisis, right? In this time of crisis, one of the things that we know about it is, like all times of crisis, but I would say this is maybe even a little bit unique, this, this coronavirus pandemic, it has the tendency to divide, to tear people apart. We know that that's happening in workplaces, right? I mean, in my workplace, in your, your workplace, Tensions can run high. Now, we, many of us don't find ourselves in, in the office or plant with each other anymore in, in, in kind of like that in-person in proximity. And yet that, frustra that frustration can still be there. For those of us working remotely, it might be like, why isn't she answering her email? Or why isn't he getting back to me after that text? How come they can't figure out how to function in a, in a Zoom meeting? Why, how come we in this company can't get our minds around this and figure out a way forward? So the tension in our workplaces is high. For many of you, you, you are still working in person. You might be in healthcare or food services. You might be a delivery driver, someone who is still going to their workplace and doing their thing. And, and I know from my own wife, uh, Amy is, a, is, a, is an RN at a local hospital. And, and it's, it's very real that the tension, the stress, the pressure is so high. And so in our workplaces, we're feeling this. In our, in our homes, we're feeling it. We're spending an inordinate amount of time with each other, right? 
We are in our homes for long periods of time, much longer maybe than we'd been accustomed to when we were going to practice and going to school and going to the store and going out to eat and going over to a friend's house and going out to just, just you know, engage in our hobbies. Now we're in this shelter in place. We're in this stay at home and stay safe reality. And, and we know that that is affecting families. It's affecting relationships between parents and children, uh, siblings with each other, and certainly husbands and wives. We know that there are families that are experiencing crisis. And we're talking with those families, in fact, on a weekly basis. And that, that's something that in my own life, and in the life of many of us in, in leadership here at Calvary, that we are, we're, we're wanting to help families navigate as they feel the pressure of this. And in fact, that word pressure is, is probably a good word, right? We do feel like, in a sense, that we're in the pressure cooker. And as the temperature rises, as the stress continues to mount, as our anxieties continue to you know, get more and more and more, as the arguments maybe increase, it almost feels like at times that we're just going to explode. That reality of, of, of being uh, divided, that's, that's something that, that crisis has the uh, ability to do is, is to splinter us, to fragment us, to tear us apart. The interesting part is crisis also has the ability to forge us together as one. You know, the church isn't immune to this. Throughout the years in the history of the church, we know that there have been, some of them are quite humorous when you think about the things that have brought division in the church. And you could probably, if you're part of a church, you may even have a story about something you'd heard or personally experienced that would kind of make us like shake our heads and laugh. But though it might be kind of humorous, it also is, is serious and sad. Division, discord, disunity within the body of Christ, within the family of God is, is a serious thing. And, and Paul, as he writes to the Philippians, he had heard of, of disunity in the, in the church. And so he wanted them to, to strive for spiritual unity. So at the, at the end of chapter 1, he had, he had urged them to, to live for Christ. But since they had received the gospel... Not only were they united to Christ, but they were also to live in unity with one another. And so he begins chapter two by giving them a recipe for spiritual unity. This recipe in, it kind of has three elements. It has kind of the, the reasons or motivation uh, for spiritual unity. It has the posture or the, the stance, the, the look of unity. What, what, what kind of, what, what does it look like? What's our orientation? What's our posture? And then also he shows them what it, what it is in action. And so to get started, I'm going to read the first two verses of that chapter. Again, we're in Philippians chapter two. I'm going to read the first two verses. You can follow along with me as I read from the Christian standard Bible. Here, Paul was inspired by God to say these things. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, we need you. We invite you to be 
the one who rules this time. We invite you to be our teacher this morning. We ask that your presence would be with us in such a way that what we do today is that is not that we just get a little bit more information about this particular part of the Bible, but that you would change us. That as our lives intersect with one another and this passage of the Bible and your, the presence of your Holy Spirit himself, that as those three things converge today in our own lives, that you would do a work in our life, that you would change us, that you would, you would close that gap a little bit between uh, who we, we are, who the Bible declares us to be in, in Christ and what we're experiencing right now in our everyday reality. We pray these things, Lord, uh, ultimately asking that your will would be done and we give you thanks in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's do this. Let's dive in by first looking uh, in this recipe at uh, our motivations, for, our motivation for spiritual unity. And the first motivation that Paul lists is encouragement in Christ. If you have received any encouragement in Christ, the Greek for encouragement is the word paraklesis. It, ha it has the root meaning of, of coming alongside someone to give them assistance by offering them, them comfort, uh, counsel, uh, consolation, uh, relationship. There have been times in our lives as, as Christians, for those of us who know Christ, many times when we have sensed and experienced the comfort and counsel of his presence in our life. This comes most clearly through the ministry of his Holy Spirit, through the ministry of his word, and also for, from the ministry of his family, fellow sisters and brothers in Christ who have come alongside us to bring encouragement to us. The second reason or motivation for spiritual unity is something that Paul calls consolation of love. This Greek word consolation is, is paramuthion, and it has the meaning of, of speaking closely with someone. The added idea of, of, of giving comfort and solace, it's actually the word that's used for when a, when a mother picks up a child who's crying. And she, she picks that child up and she holds her close to her face. And she probably speaks some very soft, gentle, comforting, assuring words. Words of ten, tender words of, of comfort and love. And again, there have been times in our lives as Christians when God has brought us, his love has brought us incredible comfort. Incredible solace, just like that song that I referred to at the beginning of the talk, that we are able to cast all our cares on him because he loves us, cares for us. You know, particularly when we think of how often we could have received something that we rightly deserve, but that would not have been good for us. And instead, out of his grace, we receive God's love. The consolation of love is something that we have experienced. The third reason or motivation for spiritual unity is something that Paul calls fellowship with the Spirit. The Greek word for participation here uh, or fellowship is, is the word koinonia. I, I mentioned a little bit about koinonia last week as we had communion together and it, it describes, I told you that it describes a, a partnership. In fact, 
in our uh, membership classes at Calvary, we're, we're trying to begin to use that word more even than the word member because the koinonia, we believe that biblical word implies not just that I'm a card-carrying member of something, but that I'm a partner, I'm an investor in it. So this word koinonia, it, it, des it describes a partnership or the share uh, which one has in anything, in anything. It implies a commitment. It means fellowship, a sharing or association. It's a word of, of deep intimacy and it, and it describes our relationship with the triune God and with our fellow Jesus followers. Christians are, are new creations in Jesus and we have been adopted into God's family so that all believers are now sisters and brothers in Christ. We, we literally bask in the privilege of having been welcomed in to God's family. The Bible says, how great is the love that God had, that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. What an amazing statement that is. And the fourth reason uh, or motivation for us to, to pursue spiritual unity is something Paul refers to as affection and mercy. Two very graphic representations. It may not sound like that it, it, unless you're looking at one of the older translations. And one of the older translations might even use the word bowels and mercy. And you might be wondering, well, why in the world would it use that? Well, that, that Greek word for affection in our translation is splunknon. It refers literally to the bowels, the intestines. <laughs> it's kind of graphic and gross perhaps, but it, it, the figuratively, figurative meaning of it refers to one's deep emotions. The ancient Greeks uh, regarded the bowels as the seat of the more violent passions, such as anger and love, but the Hebrews viewed uh, the bowels, the, the, the intestines, as actually the seat of more tender affections. Things like kindness, benevolence, compassion, and therefore this word refers to a heart of affection and tender mercy. Deep affection and tender mercy, and that's how we get that translation of affection. And the word for sympathy, it refers to a, a deep awareness of compassion, pity, mercy, and empathy for, uh, for someone else who is suffering. There's also in this word a connection uh, to the bowels. It refers to, to a heart of compassion, uh, emotions, longings, uh, uh, a, a pity that someone might feel. As, as Christians, we, we also have been blessed to receive all of this from God himself, this affection and tender mercy, this, this compassion and empathy for us in our lives. We've all received this, and we have a newfound, also supernatural capacity to extend it to each other. So when you think of all of those things, I like how one scholar kind of summarizes it. Basically about verse one, he says this, Paul asks us, asks us if there have been times in our lives when as believers, we have sensed that God is close to us. If we have been aware of his love in tremendous, scarcely describable ways. If we have reveled in the sense of belonging to the fellowship of God's people. And if we have received wonderful encouragement as a benefit of the fact that we are Christians. Have we received those things? Again, that's the, that's, Paul's using these, these things to give us motivation to, to be unified. And, he, and, and it's almost as if he's asking us these questions. 
And if the answer is yes, then we in fact are called to be different. This verse, verse one, I love the way that Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrased this verse in, uh, in what's known as the message. Look at it. He says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, if the answer is yes, I have gotten something, a lot of things out of following Christ. God's love has made a difference in in my life. If the answer is yes, then we are called to be different, to be different, to think different, to live different. Why? Because we are different. Again, as I alluded to earlier, we are new creations in Christ Jesus. And so Paul then goes on after, after that first verse to say this in verse two, look at it with me. He says, if this is true, then make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In this verse, Paul is is expressing God's desired posture for us, our leaning, our orientation, our stance, that it should be toward spiritual unity. And again, taking those two verses together, it's like an if-then statement, right? He's saying, uh, uh, like uh, in Peterson's paraphrase, that's why I I thought it was so powerful one to share it it with you. If you have experienced these great benefits uh, that every Jesus follower has, then he says, make my joy complete. I love how, how Paul gets such great joy out of the, the, the faithfulness and the spiritual growth of, of other Christ followers. He's such a, such a model for those of us who are in leadership in the body of Christ that we should take great joy as we see others experiencing that growth in Christ, that, that pursuit of him in a very, very authentic way. And so he says, make my joy complete first. How? by thinking the same way. That's the first feature of this posture of unity. He says, think the same way. That's a, that's a, a very literal translation. It, that, that phrase literally means to think the same thing or to be like-minded. We might today use the phrase something like uh, fully aligned. We are fully aligned. Paul here actually is, is not likely referring to right doctrine or theology. And of course, I understand there really can't be a a spiritual unity if our our doctrine is kind of all over the place. But given the context of what what Paul's addressing here, I think it's safe to say say that he's communicating that spiritual unity is achieved when there is a common understanding and an agreement with one another. Too often, we as Christians are not able to, to agree simply because we're not willing to listen to each other to think the same way. That's what his desire for us, to to be like-minded, to be fully aligned. That's that's the kind of posture he desires for us to have. And again, that can be applied to our our relationship with other followers in Christ, which is this this particular context. It also can be applied to your family and to your workplace. If you can begin to see things how someone else sees them, to try to begin to see the world through their eyes instead of your own, that's one of the most difficult things to do interpersonally. 
is to try to see something from someone else's perspective. As Christ followers, we're actually called to that so that we can begin thinking the same way with others. The second mark of, uh, of this unity stance is something Paul says, having the same love, having the same love. This flows out of that first spiritual mark, right? It, it means to love others equally. Love for one another is what characterizes us as genuine followers of Jesus. John said uh, in, in the book known as 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. A lack of love for our fellow sisters and brothers in Christ exposes a lack of life change. Love for each other in Christ is not, it's not merely a feeling. It's not just words, lip service, but it's active. We're engaged with others by expressing in practical ways how much we love them. So we think the same way, we have the same love. The third aspect of this, this leaning or posture is what Paul calls being united in spirit. This is actually the only occurrence of this word in the entire New Testament. It's a compound word. It's made up of uh, the prefix soon, which means together with, and, and sukos, uh, we would say psycho. Uh, that refers to the soul, the self, the inner life, or uh, the seed of, the, of one's feelings, desires, and affections. So the, rever the, so the word actually then, putting them together, refers to living harmoniously or united together with in spirit. Paul desired the Philippians and us to be united in their affections, one in Christ in all their desires. Some English translations actually uh, represent this phrase as being in one accord or being in full accord. And John MacArthur notes this about the verse. He says, he says to live in, to, to be in full accord is to live in selfless harmony with fellow believers. By definition, MacArthur says, it excludes personal ambition, selfishness, hatred, envy, jealous, jealousy, and the countless other evils that are the fruit of self-love. And the fourth piece of this orientation of this posture is intent on one purpose. This is virtually really the same as the first mark, and that first mark was thinking the same way. It literally means, this, this phrase means one-minded. But many translations, English translations like ours today, the one we looked at today, it put the emphasis on, on pursuit. And so it is intent on one purpose. This mark has to do then with us being in lockstep, in alignment, in agreement with each other as our goal. Again, when you think about that uh, and the powerful, how, how powerful that is for us in the church, it also, again, extends out to if we have one goal as a family, if we have one purpose as a family, if we're united in that, it, the, the way that that would affect us, then it, it's going to be a positive thing as we, as we fight adversity in this crisis together rather than fighting with each other. We have a common enemy, a co something that we're working against and something we're working for. MacArthur, going back to another thing that he said about this 
uh, particular verse, verse 2, he says, In this one verse, the apostle presents a full circle of spiritual unity. From one mind, to one love, to one spirit, to one purpose, which, as we just noted, it basically refers again to the mind. These four principles are complementary. They overlap with one another, and really they're inseparable. The same basic idea is being expressed in four different ways, each with a, a somewhat, a slightly different, but nonetheless important emphasis. So when you, when you see what, what, what's, what Paul covers in those first two verses, he, he wants those Philippian believers and for us to understand the motivation that we have to, to, to pursue spiritual unity. He wants us to, to give us a picture of what that posture of orientation looks like. And then he wants to share with us how it's lived out. Because you, you may kind of wonder, well, how, how is spiritual unity lived out? What's it look like in action? Paul answers that in verses three and four, when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. One scholar about this verse, these couple of verses says this, what is this? if not a principled taking up of one's cross, dying to self-interest for the sake of others. The very heart of what Jesus said following him was all about. He said, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And this scholar, this commentator is saying, this is, is basically, that's, that's the heart of what this verse is all about. This is the call of Christ on our lives. Selfish ambition, it's gotta go. Conceit, right along with it. Humble service toward others must be our constant calling. Basically, Paul is urging believers to not live for themselves, but to live for others. He's reminding them that in the same way that, that, Paul, that, that, that Jesus invited, invited them and called them to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow him. So he now is saying to them in a slightly different way, but the heart of it is the same, that they should do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but consider others as more important than themselves. What's the key for this? Well, it's that little phrase, right near kind of the beginning, right after the first comma in verse three. This happens in humility, in humility. The word that's translated in humility in our English Bibles is a, is a compound. It's a compound word, and it's uh, made up of a word that, that means, for the, the first word to pinos is, is uh, it means not rising far from the ground. That is like lowly or of low degree, low in spirit or humble. And then the, the second word, uh, frain, it literally means the midriff or diaphragm. Um, and and it's, uh, as it refers to that being a, a partition of the body. 
Figuratively, it's, it's the feelings and also one's cognitive faculties. And so it actually figuratively, figuratively refers to the mind. And phrenology is actually a study of the mind. And that, that word springs from this, this uh, root, this Greek root frame, which again refers to that, that mind, that cognitive faculties, the feelings, all of that. And so when you think of this word, when you put those two things together, not rising uh, too far above the ground, but a, a lowly position, and you combine that with this reference to, to one's mind, you, you know the phrases, to think highly of yourself, to have an inflated view of yourself or an elevated view of oneself. Well, this is the opposite of that. This is to see yourself, not, not to see yourself like overly negative, but to see yourself as you really are. And the only way that, you, that, that we're going to be able to pursue this, this sort of active engagement in spiritual unity, where we're considering someone else's interests and needs more important than my own, is I can't think too highly of Dave. And that's a struggle. That's a struggle for you. That's a struggle for me. I have a really hard time not imagining that this world revolves around an axis that cuts directly through the center of my body. Self-love, self-care, self-preservation, all of those things. It's so real, it's so natural. That's what our normal orientation is. That's what our normal posture is, is to make sure that we take care of ourselves. That's what it is for individuals. That's what it can be for families. And then within the family, that's what it can be again in companies and for people within those particular organizations. And it also can be what happens in a church where we begin to only focus about on taking care of ourselves. Well, you know, this, this concept, that we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. This concept, as it says in verse four, that, that we should look out not only for our own interests, but the interests of others. This isn't just like some minor topic. Paul didn't just say it to the Philippians. He said to the, to the Corinthians in a much different context, but he said to the Corinthians in, in uh, the, the first letter that he wrote to them, the 10th chapter and 24th verse, he said, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Now, again, the context, from what he was talking about with the, the believers in Corinth and here at Philippi were very different, but the principle still applies. It's not about me, it's about somebody else. He said to that same group of people in Corinth in the 13th chapter, some of you know that as the love chapter, he said, love isn't selfish. Love and selfishness just don't coexist. They don't go together. They're like oil and water. In fact, this doesn't, it didn't begin with, with Paul. He's not the only biblical writer to, to talk about how important it is for us to have, to have unity with one another and to, to be, more, be more focused on someone else than, than yourself. In the book of Leviticus, the book that kind of was a, served as kind of a guide for the Israelites as they were going to settle into their new land. It was kind of the, the way in which they should live as they embraced their identity in Yahweh, the one true God. In, the, in Leviticus 19, the Bible says this, you must not, and he's speaking to the Israelites 
uh, again for their to guide them as they're as they're headed into this new new adventure. It says, "You must not take revenge nor hold a grudge against any of your people. Instead, you must love your neighbor as yourself." I am the Lord. Jesus, in fact, in Mark chapter 12, identified that very thing. Love your neighbor as yourself as the second greatest commandment. The first was love the Lord your God with basically all your being, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, he said, was like a love your neighbor as yourself. He said, in fact, that you could take basically all the law, all the, all, all the Old Testament law, the, the Israeli law, and all of their prophets could be summed up in those things, those two commandments. And then in Luke chapter 10, we see him uh, redefine for them what a neighbor is because after he shares with, a, with someone who's kind of engaging him in, in discussion about these, these commandments of, of loving the Lord and, and loving your neighbor as yourself, he's asked, well, well who is my neighbor? And he, he tells the story of a good Samaritan. He tells the, the story uh, of someone who was on, uh, on a journey and, and was overcome by, by bad people, by thieves, and, and kind of left for dead. And, and there were multiple people of, of Jesus' race that, that came across him and kind of ignored him for one reason or another. You can read the whole story in, in Luke 10 again. But there was one person who stopped and helped and went way above and beyond what he would have had to do. And that person was a Samaritan. And Samaritan, Samaritans and Jews, they, they were not people who coexisted, but they were in fact were people who were separated from one another. They had conflict with one another. But Jesus asks, asks as, he, as he tells that story, he asks his hearers, well, who is the person that's been a neighbor to this person who was hurting? And of course, the answer is the one who was the Samaritan. Well, it's no wonder that Jesus told stories like that and Jesus redefined what it meant as we think about who our neighbor is. Because it's his very heart. It's at the, it's at the very core of his identity that he's one who does things not for himself, but does things for others. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Bible says this in the same way, the Son of Man did not come to be served. If anyone deserved to be served, it was him. God in the flesh. He should be the one that should be receiving service from others. But Mark 10 says he didn't come to serve, to be served, but instead he came to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many people. You see, the only reason that I can have life in Christ is because he considered my needs as more important than his. When Jesus came to earth, when God took on flesh, it was for my benefit. I needed it. And so he, he reached into my life and met a need that I couldn't meet on my own. That's exactly where Paul takes this in the very next few, next few verses in Philippians chapter 2. This idea of Jesus 
being one who came to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for us is exactly where Paul takes it. In verse 5 of, again, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, your, meaning our, attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve others. And in fact, he demonstrated for us the life that he wishes us to live. But if he would not have taken that step of serving our need, the need that we couldn't meet on our own, the need to be cleansed from our sin by his shed blood, if he wouldn't have taken that step, there's no way that we could ever take that step on our own. It's only in his power and his strength and the new identity that we have in him. That's why Paul is calling for the Philippians and for us to live in unity. That's, that's the reason that we can experience it personally with God in our churches, in our homes, and in our workplaces. Challenges be what they may and they will be there and they will maybe even get worse as these weeks uh, advance. But know that the challenges, the challenges that we're facing, they, they really even, as significant as they are, they pale in comparison to the challenge that faced Jesus as he embraced the call to bring us back to his Father by willingly giving his own life. I'd like for us to live with this, these couple of verses, this, this kind of this passage from this whole passage in the first four verses of, of Philippians 2, but especially think about this idea of when I live with my family, when I'm engaged with my coworkers, when I'm interacting with other people in the community at stores or in, in my neighborhood, how is it that I can do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit? How can I embrace that not elevated view of self, but humble myself so that I can consider others as more important, in fact, than me? How can I look out not only for my own interests, but also for the interests of others? How can we do that individually? How can we do that as a family with each other and as we interact? How can we at Calvary do that as a church to begin to, to, to more um, intentionally pursue ways in which we can bless others rather than preserve ourselves. In just a moment, we're gonna give you just uh, a little bit of discussion time, maybe like four minutes to kind of like powwow there in your homes. Um, if you're watching alone, of course, that's gonna be kind of self-reflection. Uh, but if you're watching with some others in your home right now, just kind of gather together and just talk a little bit about, maybe maybe just use this as, as, a, as, a, uh, as a guide, like, What's the most significant thing, way in which God is, is speaking today to me through this, through this word, through these, through these verses, 
through this experience of, of sharing in the word together. What, what, what is, is there something that I'm, I'm really hearing specifically? What am I going to do about it? What do I hear? What's, how is God speaking in this way? And what am I going to do about it? Maybe just use those two questions. Take four minutes to discuss. And, and also, I'm going to pray to lead you into that. But also, I would invite those of you who, um, who don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. Those of you who might be just maybe stumbled across the, the feed today and for some reason you decided to just hang out and watch. Or maybe you're in church often, but it just became aware, you became aware this morning that, that you need to receive that forgiveness that comes through the work of the one who didn't come to be served, but came to serve our need of, of relationship with the Father, of salvation, of new life. And I want to pray that, that perhaps this morning you would want to receive that truth by faith. That in fact, what God did on the cross was to open up the way for you to have relationship with him, new life in Jesus. So I'm going to pray and then uh, you'll be able to, again, either on your own or with some others, do a little bit of discussion. I'll give you some countdowns on uh, when your time is kind of winding down and then uh, close with a prayer at the end before we get out of here, okay? Let me pray as you go into your discussion time. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word from Paul to us today. Thank you for the gift that it is. I pray, Lord, for the one who might be sitting in their apartment or home. Maybe they're alone, maybe they're with some others. I pray for the one who needs to simply, in faith, receive Jesus as Savior. To confess their need to have his blood cleanse them and receive by faith new life in Christ. I pray also, Lord, for all of us that we might be able to really wrestle and live with and meditate on and talk about these, this calling of what it means to have, uh, to be unified in, in, in real life, in action. That we, could, that we wouldn't just walk away from this time without really um, having a desire to see our life look like what Paul describes, that that we're not looking out only for our own interests, but the interests of others. Individually, Lord, may that be real for as in families, even in companies, as well as for our church. We pray these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I'm going to give you about four minutes. Go ahead and uh, have that discussion, and uh, we'll again give you those time prompts. Thanks.
Okay, time's up, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks again so much for the opportunity to be together with you this morning. Just wanna close out our time with a word of prayer, but before I do that, just remind you that uh, we desire so much to continue to be here with you and for you during this time. Uh, we are praying for you, uh, we encourage you, and we love you, and we pray that you would continue to find great strength and peace and hope in Christ Jesus, as well as in being part of the family of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this opportunity to be together this morning. I pray that you would bless us, and I pray again that you would just help us to really take what you've, uh, what you've spoken today through your word, uh, what you've impressed on our hearts through the work of your spirit, that you would take those things, Lord, and, and just burn them deep into us don't allow us to quickly forget them. And so as the stream ends, God, we pray that the work of your spirit would continue, that you would just bring these things to our remembrance and uh, make them a point of discussion with friends and fellow sisters and brothers in Christ and people in our household. We just, uh, we just pray that that would happen over these next uh, couple of days. Thanks again for the opportunity, God. We, we pray that you would have been blessed by it. And uh, we, we so look forward to gathering together again soon. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. I'm sure we'll see you again soon.